Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one, go. Welcome to NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill on, on, on 710 WOR. Welcome to NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill. I am your host right here on 710 WOR Radio in New York City. Also available as a podcast on iHeartRadio, the app, of course, and iTunes. Just search NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill. On the other side of the glass is my producer, Anthony Filippio. That's, that's me. It is you. Flipsy, again, has just come from working on Ryan Seacrest's radio show. And what did you do for them there, Flips? I uh, ran his board here in New York City. You ran his board. I have no idea what that means. This guy just kept sounds, him on the air. It sounds important. It sounds very important. Yeah. Congratulations. You think they're going to have like a half a million people listening to that? Probably, yeah. Same as our show, I think, don't you think? Absolutely. Exactly right. All right. Well, welcome to the world of cannabis, Flips. It's good to have you back with us because Brian Seacrest doesn't hold a candle to us, does he? No, not no, at he all. does not. All right. Let's move on and see if we can't make some progress today. Right. Flips is holding up the blog sign. Sorry about that, everybody. Reminding me that I'm supposed to tell you about my blog, which is medium.com slash at Jeffrey Hill 2. That's medium.com slash at Jeffrey Hill 2. There's over 50 blog posts there on everything cannabis. So think of it as Meet the Press Meets Cannabis, and it's all there. The social show is also on Instagram at NYCBD Official and on Twitter and Facebook. All right, so I am totally socialed up. It's very exciting having all this social. In addition to that, I got somebody good next to me. I believe his name is Dave, or is it Keith? Which, which name are you? Dave. I got Dave shooting video today, and I got the mom here, Jackie. Jackie, say hello to the audience. Very excited. Okay, with mom going, we got Dave going, we got everybody going. We got another Jackie here. We got two Jackies, Jackie and Jackie, attorney at law. All right. So I keep working on different ideas to excite and entertain all of you, like bringing my mom in, I thought would be interesting. Last week, I opened with an editorial on my feeling about the governor of both New York and New Jersey. Of course, that's Cuomo and Murphy, respectively. Your emails and DMs suggest you, our listening audience, like the format. Now, so we're going to stick with it. Here are some thoughts for you to consider. First, legal cannabis is new. Cannabis is not. Legal cannabis is and will continue to disrupt virtually every consumer industry, including pharma, spirits, skincare, beverages, food, and yes, now even clothing. Imagine encapsulating impregnated CBD and putting it into a workout outfit on your shoulders, on your knees, wherever you need CBD to address inflammation. Yes, that is coming. The category is constantly evolving and there is a need for you to stay up. And that is my job to keep you updated. The legal global cannabis industry, let's talk a little bit about that if we can, has grown at a 38% four-year compounded annual growth rate. How big do you think it is? Well, I'll tell you. It's $12 billion. And we at NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill, along with most major data firms, including New Frontier and BDS, the two primary data firms in the space, are projecting $32 billion by 2022. 
The U.S., despite the fact that cannabis is still considered a class one drug at the federal level, will continue to be the largest market in the world with a projected $22 billion in 2022. The number two market is Canada with about $8 billion projected and roughly $2 billion spread across the rest of the world. With cannabinoids like CBD crossing into general retail, selling in Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS, Vitamin Cottage, GNC, etc. Hey, even the great Martha Stewart is coming out with a CBD brand. Quite remarkable. As a result, conservatively, I estimate another $13 billion will likely be realized by 2024, suggesting the total cannabis market in just a few years will be a $40 billion business. $40 billion. How big is that? Flips. How big is $40 billion? A lot. Darn big number. But let me give you some perspective. L'Oreal, the largest cosmetics business in the world, is $26 billion. Colgate does $18.5 billion. P&G's entire Gillette business does $15 billion. The global Dove brand of Unilever, which I worked on for many years and enjoyed all of that experience, does $6 billion. Crest does $3.5 billion. So at $40 billion in the next few years, I guess cannabis is pretty darn big, isn't it? Flips? Thoughts? That's insane. Yeah, exactly right. It's damn big. By the way, my first damn, how's that work, Flips? Can I do the damn word? Damn Skippy. Damn is? Say it again? <laughs> damn's fine. Damn is fine. I say thank God for that. You know, the seven words you can't say. I didn't think damn was one of them because everybody seems to be damning these days, so I'm going to roll a damn at you. All right. If you were listening last week, you heard that approximately 80% of U.S. and Canadian adults agree there should be some form of legal marijuana. of Americans believe it offers real enhancements in health outcomes. In the 11 fully legal U.S. states, 32% of adults, 21 and over, consume cannabis. Let me repeat that. One-third of all adults, 21 and over, in 11 recreational, also known as adult-use states, consume cannabis. Of note, a full 36% of people in those states said they reject cannabis consumption of any kind. So you get one-third doing it, one-third not doing it, and one-third, I guess they don't know if they're doing it or not. In adult use states, as I said, there are 11, 82% agree it can offer real health benefits, which is very important. As you know, the entire NYCBD show and all of my emphasis is on the medicinal side of this business. Now, there's a lot of time and attention because there's so much tax money associated with the adult use side, but we need to focus on what it can do for epilepsy, autism, PTSD, depression, and a whole host of other things. By the way, 82% agree it has real health benefits in the, in the 11 states. It drops all the way down to 50% in restricted states. So adult use adds roughly 32% more people thinking that there's real value added. Why? Because many of their friends are starting to use it. They're starting to replace sleep meds with it and a whole host of other things. And they're talking about it at dinner tables, at cocktail events, at barbecues, right? And they're learning. Everybody's learning. Everybody's teaching everybody else. And so if you've got a good friend who had aches and pains after a hard workout or couldn't recover fast enough and was a golfer, had to play 36 holes and was wondering how he's going to get the second 18 in, especially on an 85-degree day, well, guess what? a good chance he's using cannabis, like Bubba Watson, for example, professional golfer, and a whole host of other people. All right? It is not just THC that is exploding. CBD, recall, that's the non-psychoactive uh, part of the plant, usually coming from hemp, is exploding as well. 53% of CBD consumption is in edibles, food, beverages, and supplements. 24%, including my mom and dad, 
let me repeat that, including my mom and dad, mom's here today, use topicals, creams, and lotions for transdermal use. Only 11% use inhalables. I had an amazing discussion with my dad recently. Got to get, got to get all the parents involved, right? You got mom here, dad's listening. He called me up with a level of excitement in his voice I had not heard for years. Suffice to say, dad is at least 20 years older than me. That puts him up there. He said for the first time in the last few years, the pain in his legs and even his blood pressure was normalizing. When his doctor then asked him, what have you been doing, Dick? These data are quite surprising. Father's name is Richard. Everybody calls him Dick. My dad said, nothing. And when he left his office, he thought about it some more and called me up how many times? Seven times. My dad hasn't called me seven times in seven years. He did it back to back. Well, I'm not sure, I said, if it's the CBD or not, but let's just enjoy your improvement and keep taking the CBD. And my dad said, you're darn right, I will. All right. He agreed, of course. And what did he ask me to do? Send more. Send more stuff. So I did. Now he's got several packages and he'll be able to use it virtually every day. To get the full medicinal value, of course, I encouraged him to take it orally as well, which you've heard me say before, a tincture under the tongue and then a transdermal, let's say, on the knee, the lower back, whatever bothers you. And that literally is CBD at the point of pain, as well as CBD kind of like, you know, orally. And in my experience, that seems to create the best result. So... What do we think we need? Well, consumer education is clearly needed. 69% of Americans, listen to this, think there's no difference between THC and CBD. All right, that's like saying there's no difference between a car and an airplane. THC is a psychoactive. You can get stoned from it. CBD has less than three-tenths of 1% THC, and you can't. there is no psychoactive. You cannot get stoned from it. The reality is there is an enormous difference. As you can tell from those numbers, by the way, my dad would never take THC, but the CBD seems to be making a difference for him as it is for so many others. All right, let's move on to a discussion of branded products, which is my personal strength. You all know I came out of Procter & Gamble, and then, yes, I was the marketing director for the Tan Brands Company, making me the most knowledgeable male and feminine hygiene in the world today, okay? But bottom line, it was consumer packaged goods. I worked on Scope Mouthwash. I launched Perch Shampoo with a buddy, John Bess. Enjoyed dishwashing liquid for Procter & Gamble. And then again, as I said, as marketing director of Tampax, now owned by who? Well, by Procter. They kind of saw it and they bought it from the original. It was public, of course, and they bought it from basically the family. So what's happening in branding? Well, in Colorado, 96% of edible sales are fully branded. Ben and Jerry's. Remember Ben and Jerry? They just announced CBD will be included in their product. Well, who owns Ben and Jerry's? Mom, do you know who owns Ben and Jerry's? Ben and Jerry. Ben and Jerry did, but now it's owned by Unilever, a $90 billion global CPG firm, and they were a client of mine for years. What else has Unilever done? They acquired Smith Naturals, which includes natural deodorants that leverages plant and mineral-derived formulas. Unilever will be using the Smith's brand to launch a line of hemp oil deodorants through select retailers. All right, hemp oil deodorant. Anxious to see what the claim there is. I can only guess. Flips, any guess? Not a clue. Not a clue, and neither do I. I haven't heard of CBD in a deodorant before. Uh, I believe this is called claim substantiation, and everybody thinks CBD makes everything unique and different. And I'm encouraging you, ladies and gentlemen, to watch out for that. CBD is a medicinal product. It adds value to so many disease states. Treat it seriously, and it will give you something you'll never forget. Positive health outcomes. 
All right. So while their products will be infused with hemp seed oil, not hemp-derived CBD, Michael Camarata, chief executive officer at Schmitz Naturals, says that the hemp oil deodorant line will be followed by a CBD product range as long as the regulations are cleared up by the FDA. All right, so now we understand, right? So Unilever buys Schmitz. They're going to come out with this deodorant. They're going to then come out with CBD. Why are they waiting? Very likely because they don't want to go up against the FDA, not only because they're a publicly traded firm, but because they're a global firm. And you don't want to have the FDA on the wrong side of you, do you? All right, let's talk about the U.S. spirits market for a minute. It's also up for grabs. Currently, the market is roughly $160 billion. That's all spirits, ladies and gentlemen, projected to be $180 billion by 2022. Nine times the cannabis market. But there is a soft underbelly there. In the most mature markets that have adult use, that's Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, spirit sales are down 17%, or roughly the equivalent of $30 billion in 2022. What are spirits companies doing? Well, some are panicking. That doesn't get you very far, does it? Others are acting quickly. Constellation Brands, makers of Corona, and several other beers invested roughly $5 billion in Canopy, the largest capitalized cannabis business in the world, at $23 billion. Let me repeat that, $23 billion. And what are they going to do in volume this year? Oh, roughly uh, $220 million. So those numbers are quite interesting, aren't they? Okay, well, so why is Constellation so involved? Well, could it be the 14% drop in beer sales in the recreational states? which could represent a major potential reduction, couldn't it, in the Constellation profits? After all, Constellation Brands also makes, which a lot of people don't know, whiskey, vodka, and tequila, and guess what? Yes, they're all down as well. Why? Flips, why? Why are they down? Not many people are drinking anymore. Well, what are they doing instead? Weed. Uh, let's use the term cannabis, my friend. <laughs> cannabis. You're on, you're, on, you're on an adult show here, okay? <laughs> Very good. All right? You can tell which one of us is older and which one of us is younger. If I ask my mom, <laughs> I don't think she'd have known that answer. All right. So let's talk more about falling beer sales. In January of this year, researchers of a 10-year-long joint study undertaken by two U.S. universities and one in Lima, Peru. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at Chumba Casino. Casino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Who showed a 14% drop in beer sales following marijuana legalization. Overall data showed that sales of alcohol were on average 15% lower. So you basically the same number keeps coming and coming and coming. People are choosing cannabis as a replacement for alcohol. Why? Because it's a better experience. Number one, you can basically maintain your sense of self. Many people can drive quite comfortably on cannabis. You may remember Trip Kieber, who was on the second show that we did. Trip was the original founder of Dixie Brands. Prior to that, he owned a number of spirits businesses himself in Denver, and he noticed kind of qualitatively a significant loss of business as more and more people were doing cannabis. Well, indeed, that's happening. Sales volume of light beers like Coors, which, as you know, comes out of Denver, and Bud Light took the most significant hit at 4.5%, while the regular Budweiser and Coors business did indeed dip by a couple of percent. All right, so I could percent you to death here, but why don't we move on? 
Another study, which took place in 2016, showed similar results. Performed by the New York-based research firm Cowan & Company, the study found sales of beers made by the larger domestics producers had collectively underperformed over the past two years in all three states, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. The report stated, with all three of these states now having fully implemented a marijuana retail infrastructure, the underperformance of beer in these markets has worsened over the course of the last few years. Let's talk about some other companies that are taking action. How about Heineken? They're launching high-thigh hops, a cannabis-only beverage and a handful of dispensaries in California under its Lagunitas brand. By the way, I like Lagunitas. It's got that kind of whole weedy thing going on. Really quite delicious. Add CBD. Gets even more interesting. The beverage is not designed to taste like beer, but does not contain alcohol. Instead, it contains cannabis. Currently, the beverage comes in a 10-milligram version with THC, by the way, that is the psychoactive, and a hybrid version with five milligrams of THC and five more milligrams of CBD. A little bit of both. Although the drink costs $8 a can, let's multiply that out, six-pack, Flips, I won't even challenge you on that one because Flips' math is- It's always always, bad. Oh, God, very embarrassing. (laughs) But I'll do the numbers for you. Six times eight, 48. When was the last time you paid $48 for a beer? Bet the margins are pretty darn good, right? Why do you think they're in it? Okay, let's go to Molson. In January, Molson's noted their concerns about falling beer sales. So Molson Coors out of Canada announced a joint venture with Hydro uh, Hydro Apothecary, also known as HEXO, a publicly traded company in Canada and a recognized leader in medicinal cannabis. Coors Canada agreed to develop a line of non-alcoholic cannabis-infused beverages with this cannabis powerhouse. All right. How many of you know Blue Moon? Love that. Love that. What do you put in Blue Moon, big fella? Nothing. You put an orange in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right right, right on. You're a mixologist. There's no question. Usually I don't put an orange in it. Well, okay. Their previous CEO and founder, Keith Vila, interesting man, recently retired from his position at Molson Coors. Well, congratulations to retirement and welcome to retirement. Oh, maybe he didn't retire. He and his wife are now founders of Seria, C-E-R-I-A Beverages, a brewing company in Colorado that is working directly with a cannabis research company to develop what? A THC-infused alcohol-free beer. All right, let's move on. How about Marlboro? Marlboro's owner, Altria, invested $1.8 billion in Canadian legal producer, Kronos, giving them a 45% stake, and they have the right to take it even further. Okay, my contacts tell me they're finalizing plans to launch cannabis smoking products as soon as the government lifts class one. Well, they got a while to wait, don't they? Right. The smoking population, specifically Marlboro, Altria, and Lorillard, and the other players, Philip Mars, etc., they're not going to come up against the federal government. They spent years and years getting their butt handed to them, didn't they? With that unbelievably large settlement, they don't want to push that ahead. Yet they're going to love the profits when they come, of course. What about Coke? A few years ago, Coke was rumored to be entering CBD by putting it in Coke. What has happened? Well... A former Coke executive has joined the cannabis industry, Colorado-based Charlotte's Web, which specializes in hemp-paste cannabidiol wellness products, has named Eugenio Mendez to its newly established role of chief growth officer. Mendez, who previously served as Coca-Cola's vice president of global marketing for water, enhanced water and sports drinks as an advisor to Charlotte's Web. Now, keep in mind, Charlotte's Web, Charlotte, Fiji, right? Had those grand mal seizures. I've told you this story countless times, right? You've read it in my blog. You've read it about it elsewhere, right? Charlotte's Web meets the Charlotte, the Fijis, 
basically can't control her seizures. They meet Josh Stanley and the Stanley Brothers, at the time a gray market producer of high CBD, low THC. They feed it to Charlotte. Essentially, Charlotte feels better, gets better. They launch a brand called Charlotte's Web. It becomes the market leader globally in CBD. And they start The Rock, ROC, Realm of Caring, executive director Heather Purcell. Brilliant people doing brilliant work, changing the health of kids all over the world. So... The appointment of the Coca-Cola vice president came right after President Trump signed what? Of course, the 2018 Farm Bill, which gave everybody license to get into this business. And that was roughly six, seven, eight months ago. Bloomberg reported that the Coke company is in serious talks with Aurora Cannabis, currently the second largest publicly traded Canadian company, with a valuation of $15 billion. Bloomberg reported the talks were about CBD-infused beverages, You could be darn sure Coke's going to get in this business. It's just a matter of time. And Aurora is a perfect candidate. Aurora is very acquisitive, as many of you know. And they bought countless businesses. And at $15 they got plenty of room to buy more, don't they? Well, I hope you enjoyed that overview of where things stand. Next up, we will have our guest, G. Ryan Anson. Probably one of, if not the most respected players in the cannabis space overall, And certainly in Massachusetts. I grew up in Massachusetts. Love it there. In fact, as soon as I finish this show, I'm heading to Plymouth, Mass to hang out with my college roommate. And we're going to do our best to celebrate up there. And he's been listening to the shows. Gives me a lot of kind of critiques. Everybody's my critic. My dad's my critic. My mom's my critic. Everybody's my critic, right? I got a lot of people helping me. You know, I'm trying my best here, all right? Anyway, Massachusetts is an adult use state. And, of course, we know Senator Warren is in full support of the space. Who's that? Well, she's running for president. And their previous governor, Weld, is sitting on the board of Acreage Holdings, a major player on the dispensary side of the business. Well, having guided the vision of one of the country's largest indoor cultivation facilities and the launch of a revolutionary clinics business called Revolutionary Clinics, Anson is also president of a group of what? 300 single-family offices. You won't want to miss Ryan, so get comfortable, grab a glass of water, and we will be right back right after this. The Alchemist Kitchen celebrates the power of plants. They're the leading destination in New York City for CBD. Their organic CBD hemp flower is grown in upstate New York. So come on down and talk to one of their herbalists to learn about how CBD may relieve stress, anxiety, and pain. Located at 21 East 1st Street, right near the Bowery. Mention NYCBD for special savings for your first purchase. See you soon. Or visit them online at thealchemistkitchen.com. That's the A-L-C-H-E-M-I-S-T kitchen.com Welcome back to NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill right here on 710 WR Radio and iHeart. Also available on iTunes and Instagram at NYCBD Official. Yes, we also have it on Facebook and Twitter so you can follow us wherever you choose to. Well, let's talk to my guest, Ryan Anson. Ryan hails from the Boston area, as do I. In fact, the mom grew up in Brookline, and she's here, as you know. Please don't hold that against us, because I know most of you folks out there are in the greater New York area, or at least the tri-state, and nobody includes Massachusetts in the tri-state. So, Ryan... so many championships. Exactly right. Let's not go there right away, because, you know, everybody might get negative on us. So, so Ryan is an entrepreneur, an early-stage investor, a philanthropist, and a very impressive guy. 
As an investor and advisor, Anson has built a portfolio of industry-changing startups and growth stage companies in the tech, health tech, fashion, and real estate verticals. Anson currently spends most of his time leveraging, believe it or not, abandoned mill buildings in Massachusetts to aid in the expansion of medicinal cannabis. He invested in both the cultivation and dispensary networks, as well as advanced technologies to bring what he refers to as, I love this line, the outdated cannabis cultivation practices into what? Uh, How about the 21st century? As you, the listening audience, know, I'm very focused on philanthropy, as is Ryan. He founded EPHAS, E-P-H-A-S, Every Person Has a Story, in 2009, and works on many other 501c3 boards as well. So Ryan is a good business person and a hell of a philanthropist. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. I, I haven't thought about ethics in a long time. Well, there you go. A well, wonderful I, chapter of life. I'm sure it was. I went back and looked hard, made sure I had a good sense for who you were before we were lucky enough to get you on the show. So I've been following the Anson family and your personal career for some time. The family has been making a mark, you know, for, I think, a few generations, and you have been doing so for several years now yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about the Ansons and your business focus as a family? Yeah, sure. We, we definitely don't have one single focus. We constantly are trying to learn all kinds of new things and follow our nose a little bit. The family historically has been in the footwear industry, uh, both on the manufacturing side as well as part of the uh, founding team with Cole Hahn and uh, ran that for a long time. And then in media and real estate as well, um, but really proud uh, of a lot of the things that my family has done, much more on the philanthropic and social enterprise side. And we, we continue to stay busy, continue to iterate. And uh, we, we like what I think of as uh, dumb companies, companies uh, or industries that uh, need standardization and, and to be brought up to speed with greater organization and a greater focus on customers, greater focus on treating people right, and greater focus on deep entrenchment locally. Yeah. Um, so we, we've, we've done that in a bunch of industries, and I'm, I'm honored and excited to, to do it here in Cannabis. All right, so let's let's go ahead and get into that a little bit. How did Ryan Anson, going from a family that had so many different interesting pursuits, how did you get into cannabis? Sure. Um, so most recently, I uh, prior to cannabis, I had spent my time uh, in in two ways. One as president of a group called the Family Office Association, which uh, is a group of a few hundred uh, families dedicated uh, to investing donating and diligencing all together. And that opened my eyes to all kinds of new emerging markets. So spending my time there and then spending my time uh, helping to start a diamond mine in Sierra Leone. And when the (laughs) Ebola crisis came along in Sierra Leone, while we continue to help on the philanthropic side, I spent less time in West Africa and had always pledged to come back to my hometown of uh, Fitchburg and Lunenburg, Massachusetts, uh, Fitchburg being uh, an industrial city, and had always pledged to come back there uh, later on in life to create jobs, having watched the demise of towns like Fitchburg when manufacturing left the United States. And um, so when I came back from spending a lot of time on the continent of Africa 
I looked at one of our lingering family assets that my uncle was trying to uh, use productively and thought it was a perfect spot for vertical farming uh, of leafy greens, microgreens, vegetables, uh, strawberries are really the holy grail uh, of profitability per square foot uh, in indoor farming and uh, thought it was perfect. And then I was told by experts that it was anything but perfect, um, but that it did fit the bill uh, for exactly what's necessary for medicinal marijuana. Well, there you go. I looked at this 250,000 square foot facility and, and got pretty excited. Okay, so before we get into that, I want to underscore one thing that you have done and that your family has done for many, many years. And that is um, the philanthropic side of what you do. So, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We've talked a lot about on this show about some of the folks that are benefiting from the category But I want the listening audience to understand that virtually everybody I've ever had on this show is benefiting from it. But you may remember Trip, or you may remember Kevin McGovern and McGovern Capital, certainly Ryan and his his group and his family. Every one of these people is very committed to giving back. So, yes, they're certainly developing businesses in the space. Those businesses are employing lots and lots of people. He's going back to Fitchburg. I'm going to call that impact investing. Right. And for those of you in the audience that know what impact investing is, it basically means impacting in foundation related activities, healthcare related activities, going into markets that are a bit, shall we say, on the slide and turning things around, making an impact. Would you say, Ryan, that that's pretty much what captures what you guys are doing? Absolutely. It's, it's funny. I, I, I'm not often asked that question, um, but I spent a couple years uh, with some dear friends really working hard to resituate our portfolios, however large or small, uh, to be really conscious of how we were investing. And that was when the term impact investing was coined. And so we all had the privilege of not only doing it uh, actively, but also sharing best practices on how to go about doing it. Great. So I already had that framework a bit in my head. Um, and as I, as I evolved my thinking from uh, vertical farming in Fitchburg to uh, utilizing that factory for, for this use case, it really has many, many layers of positivity uh, on the impact side, on the social uh, justice side. And I, I love that. I, I love that I get to spend 12 to 16 hours a day working really hard on building a business that's trickling down and having real impact on, on a lot of different communities and a lot of things that I care about. Right. Now, you may remember, everyone, that last week we had Dan Pabone on, right? Dan worked for seven uh, years on John Hickenlooper's kind of uh, work in Denver, both as mayor and then as governor, to basically establish the rules and regulations for legalizing in Colorado. And you may recall that he's working in New York and he's working in New Jersey and some other places. We took a shot at both governors, you may remember, because they've kind of, shall we say, messed it up a little bit. But the bigger point is that Dan brought up that a lot of what cannabis is, is indeed 
giving jobs, creating opportunities, creating employment. You could even look at it from a farming standpoint. A lot of farmers in the upstate, call that New York, call that Western Mass, are generating ten to $12,000 per acre for what they're producing. Yet, if they're producing hemp, that number looks more like thirty to 35000 and I've seen it go higher. So there's a lot of good jobs, good employment, and good impact on health outcomes coming out of this space. All right, let me go on, Ryan. Massachusetts has become very proactive with adult use, having not only been approved, but finally rolling out. Took a little bit of time, that's for sure. The adult use referendum was passed by Massachusetts voters almost two years ago. What took so long to get it done? And try your best to be concise here, because I know we can go on for a long time having this one. Yeah, in in one sentence, Massachusetts wanted to get it right. Uh, And there are a lot of factors per geography that one needs to consider in order to get it right. I I don't fault anyone for a slow rollout. This is is a, a, a monumentous change in state law and national law in, in our culture, and it can go wrong. I'm baffled often by the fact that states haven't learned best practices from each other, and I'm thrilled that Massachusetts did its best and continues to do its best to roll it out in an appropriate way. Now, it's not to say that there, there aren't daily, weekly, monthly, or annual frustrations with certain aspects uh, that need to be ironed out, but When I look at Massachusetts, and I'll give you one or two examples, but Massachusetts' thoughtfulness in how they're rolling it out, and then I look at uh, some other states that I I, I, I won't name directly, but some that have come online after Massachusetts uh, who are commoditizing overnight and and putting farmers uh, at risk of, of absolute normalization or commoditization right away, uh, following the path of Oregon and Washington without any controls in place, I, I'm thrilled to be here. So I, I certainly abut challenges every day, and, and the, the company that I'm proud to be a part of abuts challenges every day. But um, I'd, I'd rather it be controlled and thoughtful um, than what I'm seeing in some other geographies. And right. one example that I'll quickly give you is in Massachusetts, there's a 100,000-square-foot canopy cap. Um, now, under certain regulations, you can have up to three of those licenses, but even 300,000 square feet compared to the millions of square feet that people want to roll out, that's a big difference. It, it, it keeps normalization at bay. It keeps prices realistic. So right now, they are too high in Massachusetts. They will certainly come down. But there's a function in the Massachusetts law that says, if you create so much biomass or so much product that you're stacking up inventory over a certain period of time, then you get docked from one license uh, level to the next. So from 100000 to 90000 or from 30000 Right. So essentially, it, yeah, essentially you, pay a, you pay a price for kind of abusing uh, a market that can keep giving back. Let me let me let me juxtapose something for my audience, and then I want to get into your actual company itself because I don't think we've done justice yet on the brilliant company you've created in Massachusetts. And that is that last week we took a shot at our at our at our governor to our northeast, I guess, and that is Governor Murphy from New Jersey. So they had a referendum in New Jersey, and the referendum passes for adult use, right? He says within 100 days, we're going to have pass adult use. And he starts throwing around numbers, starting with a B, a billion 
in incremental taxes. Well, guess what? He goes to the assembly and he already had the referendum passed. Now it's a matter of execution. There was 15 different mechanisms, 15 different bills in front of the assembly to try to push forward adult use in New Jersey. Everybody threw up their hands. And what did he do? He expanded the number of seed-to-sale licenses with the stroke of a pen, a la our current president, who does a lot of things by executive order. Well, he did it there, and he went from 6 to 12 in terms of seed-to-sale licenses on his own. And what did that do? That infuriated some of the players in the assembly, and where are they now? They're nowhere. So that's an example of some of the folks that aren't doing it that well, and juxtapose that against Massachusetts and what... Ryan has told us of a state that has indeed done it well. All right, let's get underneath this a little bit further. Tell us about your company, then I want to come back and talk about taxes. Sure. So I spend my time in in three main ways. I I continue to invest in the industry privately with with small checks, aiming to support really fantastic teams still going from zero to one, uh, which is harder now than it was certainly in, in 2014, 2015. Uh, I also uh, am glad to be a part of a, a fund based out of Hong Kong uh, that's uh, a private equity fund focused on growth stage capital. But about 10 to 12 hours a day, I'm focused on uh, helping to operate a company that I co-founded called Revolutionary Clinics here in Massachusetts. There you go. I mean, that's that's the one that when I go to Massachusetts, of which, as I said, you may not have heard this, Ryan, but I'm on my way there right after the show. I'm going up to Plymouth for the next All four right. or five days. But, you know, everybody knows up there what Revolutionary Clinics is doing. You you are personally given very high marks for kind of doing it the right way. Tell us just a little bit about Revolutionary Clinics, please. Sure. So Revolutionary Clinics uh, is a vertically integrated series of licenses here in Massachusetts. We're really proud to be, uh, I, I think, the only group, if not one of the only groups, that has three Metro Boston locations, two in Cambridge and one in Somerville. And then we have a very large cultivation and processing facility out in Pittsburgh, as we mentioned. And we just try to do things a a little bit differently, a little bit uh, more thoughtfully. We're uh, the only group in the U.S. that I know of that's cooled off of geothermal wells. We uh, really were on the forefront of LED lighting and technologies there. We're, We're really built for that. Uh, and we we made the very conscious choice um, at a moment when we hired a, a wonderful CMO uh, who scanned the market to see opportunities for differentiation to double down onto. And we made the choice to focus nearly exclusively on people. Um, everyone's website in the industry says we have the best XYZ, the best flower, the best tincture, the best this and that. And certainly a lot of people have great product and science continues to improve that you can rely on it or depend on it in in greater ways. Um, But Revolutionary really focuses on people, our our employees, our staff, our our whole tribe, and first and foremost, our our customers or our patients. Uh, It's all about meeting people where they're at with their problem set or their need set, where we're mostly... uh, Medicinal right now, we, we wholesale into the recreational market until Somerville and Cambridge finalize uh, their frameworks, which is just about to happen. We're excited for that. Um, but, boy, we, we, we care deeply for uh, each, qual- each category of our customers right now, mostly our patients, and we'll continue to do that, drive deeper and deeper into how we can be helpful in their lives. 
Right. Well, I think that that's very important. And I want to kind of underscore what Ryan just said. So here's my experience. I've been in the category for seven years. And as I said a number of times, you know, I come from a more sophisticated, you know, marketplace, uh, consumer packaged goods. I work for Procter & Gamble and some other very large companies. In the early days when the gray market was becoming the legal market, everybody says the gray market, you all know what that means. All right. What was coming over the transom was a number of people that basically were kind of coming out of the woods. And I've used the phrase doing business with machine guns and machetes. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, thank God. But it's in some extent, it's not far from the truth. Well, any number of years later, what's happening? What's happening is some of the best minds in agronomy, the best minds in agriculture, the best minds in science, the best minds in epilepsy, the best minds in autism, the best minds in farming, and many of the best managers in the world are leaving their current vertical, whatever that may be. And yes, consumer packaged goods is throwing a lot of their folks in the ring, and they're starting to work for companies like Ryan's company. People that are first class people. So when you start thinking, first class managers, of course, when you start thinking about making investments, at least in my experience, it's about 55 to 60% management team, 30% the idea, right? And 10% basically what the deal structure is, right? The most important thing is management team, and Ryan is doing a hell of a job doing that. Let me move on. You you can be sure of one thing in the business plan, and, and that's that it's wrong. So yeah, you're, exactly you're really right. investing in the people to, to make it right <laughs> as, as everything changes right. on a daily basis. Right. So for those of you out in the listening audience, right, when you write a business plan, which has got three years or five years of economics, it's basically an Excel spreadsheet exercise, and every number on there is made up. Every single number is made up. All right? Okay, let's move on. The governor's office. Let's talk about taxes. The governor's office in Massachusetts put a number of $93 million to $172 million in incremental taxes for the state this fiscal year. That assumes a 17% sales tax, suggesting a business of between $600 million and a $1 billion. Give us a sense for, in New York, Governor Cuomo, of course, he couldn't get it done, but he had earmarked several hundred million to rebuild mass transit. What has been the preliminary commitment in the state? Where is the money going? Sure. Um, so in Massachusetts, there, to my knowledge, and I, I don't I don't track this on a daily basis, so forgive me if there's been an evolution, but uh, to my knowledge, the, the tax revenue from this industry is largely focused on education in, uh, for this industry, uh, keeping youth away, uh, which we all appreciate, uh, safety within the industry, drug prevention, and it, it goes even beyond that. Um, I, I know our, our governor, Governor Baker, is heavily focused on combating the opiate crisis and, or epidemic, and uh, we, we all know that uh, there are studies being done, a lot of them in the affirmative, showing that medicinal cannabis has a real place in relieving or alleviating alleviating the opiate crisis in, in many, many uh, circumstances. And so I think the governor and I, I think many uh, actors in the state of Massachusetts see this tax revenue uh, amassing to the point where it can boil over and help with that situation as well, as Massachusetts is definitely in the, in the worst, uh, or the top echelon, the worst echelon, I should say, um, on the opiate ep- epidemic side, being twice the national average of, of opiate deaths. And I, I know a lot of this tax revenue is going to be focused there. But I will make a quick comment that I think 17% is right. 
I don't know if it's maybe 16, maybe 18, but what you've watched in California, as an example, is too high of taxes. So most consumers that have, are, are already in the cannabis world, they're not going to the stores. They're, they're remaining in the illicit market. And so the tax revenues aren't, aren't uh, being achieved in those states where the taxes are upwards of 35, 40%. If you go there for a $100 order, you leave spending $140, and people, people just aren't doing that enough. Right, so right. And, you know, the further compounding that, everyone, it's not just taxes. There's, some, there's, there's, a, there's a rule called 280E, which basically makes it not legal to deduct expenses in your businesses, as every other business it deducts everything from um, basically G&A or, you know, salaries as expenses, insurance as expenses, et cetera, et cetera. In this category, as of now, because of the federal regulation, that is not allowed. So that's an interesting point. It's the combination of understanding this incremental revenue here, but you don't want to basically kill the goose that lays the golden egg, right? So you want to do it appropriately, take the incremental funds let the category find its way into healthcare. Let the find let it find its way into improving health outcomes. And yes, by all means, if the state wants to do it, let it find its way into recreation. If it replaces, you know, spirits, I would submit it's a good move, right? The no numbers question. that I talked about earlier. Think about all the driving while intoxicated, the DWI numbers. Those numbers are going to change precipitously once cannabis keeps rolling out. All right, let me go on to something that's kind of intriguing. I'm not sure how to deal with it. Uh, It just came on the radar screen. There's only two states in the country that have approved on-site consumption, essentially comparable to a cigar bar. That's Colorado and Massachusetts. How do you see that impacting your business? And given the additional conversation we've had up to now, where do you see this fitting in? Yeah, I I think it fits in wonderfully uh, in a number of ways. Um, first is this is a really expensive business. And when I say this, it's a very broad category. The cannabis industry is very expensive to get into. So there needs to be various ways that folks with you know, $100,000 saved up or friends and family that can amass some amount of money to get involved in the space and be entrepreneurs. And social consumption and home delivery are two examples of that. So I'm really glad that there are some um, some avenues into being part of this industry that don't cost $20 million or $100 million to do it right. Um, so in the ecosystem, it fits in really well. Secondary to that, there's a lot of, uh, of apartment complexes and subsidized housing projects that won't allow cannabis consumption. And I truly believe that there are folks in every community that need this product and so they need outlets to be there. Um, so it fits in really well geographically there uh, and thematically there. And then to your more direct initial question, how does it affect our business? Look, Revolutionary does not intend to be in the business of running these consumption lounges, but we are absolutely prepared and continue to gear up to uh, produce products that fit exactly what they're looking for. Of course. And that bridges into a whole other question that we, I, I won't delve into too deeply, but it's the intersection between real science and the evolution of this industry, allowing for rapid uptake uh, as well as the clearing of these cannabinoids from binding with their CB1 and CB2 receptors so that people have a very strong estimate at least 
of knowing how long it's going to take for this to react with their systems as well as when it's going to dissipate from their systems so the social consumption lounges can be more on point with who they're targeting, as well as keeping everybody safe along the way. Yeah, fascinating. This has been great. We could talk for a long time on this. Um, wonderful to spend time with you. I want to suggest that it would be great to have you come back and talk some more. Thank you. And thank you for coming on NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right, really appreciate it. When we come back, I'm going to do a rapid-fire review of the fallout of many of the things Ryan just said and the impact on many minorities of the federal government's unwillingness to eliminate Class 1. The Alchemist Kitchen celebrates the power of plants. They're the leading destination in New York City for CBD. Their organic CBD hemp flower is grown in upstate New York. So come on down and talk to one of their herbalists to learn about how CBD may relieve stress, anxiety, and pain. Located at 21 East 1st Street, right near the Bowery. Mention NYCBD for special savings for your first purchase. See you soon. Or visit them online at thealchemistkitchen.com. That's the A-L-C-H-E-M-I-S-T kitchen.com Welcome back to NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill right here on 710 WR Radio also available on iHeart as a podcast and iTunes feel free to send us direct messages on any of our official sites Instagram of course is at NYCBD official Alright, so I loved having Ryan on the show Smart guy, just to give you a perspective Ryan is mid-30s right? This man has been doing things his entire life Of course he was part of a family That has done brilliant things for many generations That didn't hurt him But Ryan himself is quite a superstar So we thank Ryan for participating If you've been listening to this show You know the Canadian LPs Like Canopy, Tilray, Kronos, Hexo, etc Those are the largest firms in the world of cannabis What are they doing internationally? Well, they're scrambling to get a strong toehold in Europe. There are two main reasons why Canadian LPs are scrambling to gain ground in Europe's hemp market. The first is that the market has a lot of room for growth and very few actors operating in the space when compared to the North American market. Instead of trying to compete in a crowded marketplace, Canadian LPs are opting to go for the low-hanging fruit, yet the lucrative fruit. The second reason is that by establishing European foothold now, the Canadians will be better positioned to transition to cannabis production whenever legalization ever takes hold of the European Union. As the EU's hemp industry continues to grow, expect to see more Canadian LPs start to dabble in the market. Europe is hesitant to embrace CBD. America is hesitant to embrace cannabis, right? So what is happening We're giving away the fastest growing category and the most important health improvements that we've seen in the last 75 years to a number of countries that are to our north and throughout the world. The Germans, for example, their Federal Office of Consumer Protection and Food Safety echoed the European positioning stating that CBD products could not be sold in their country at all unless the product in question undergoes safety evaluation. So they're out. As one of the most populous and economically prosperous countries in the EU, Germany's stance on CBD has been seen by many as a blow to the European hemp industry. What about Japan? Japan still considers any cannabis use illegal. 
However, their leading epileptic researcher, Professor Yamamoto, who has been teaching and researching at St. Mariana University, was just named head of cannabinoid science by Mr. Arai, who reports directly to Abe, the Japanese prime minister. So they're getting some things moving forward. But bottom line, they're years away. Who else? What about Israel? Well, they're all over it. We've talked a bit about this on the show. They have eight legal producers. They're the furthest ahead in the science. They're leading work in Australia, Portugal, Germany, Denmark, Italy, China, and Colombia. And once again, where's America? Well, you know, we're trailing way behind. So what is our Justice uh, Justice Department saying about all this? Of course, our Justice Department is now run by the famous Attorney General Barr, who certainly made a big splash on the Mueller report, didn't he? A little. Just a little splash. There you go. And I know that uh, Flips read all 250 pages. (laughs) Not a chance. Come on, of course you did. (laughs) Not a chance. His views on cannabis, that's Barr, of course, lean much further left when he was being interviewed for the job. But not surprising, now that he is working with President Trump, his views are, what? Well, they're edging right. At the time of his confirmation hearings, in response to written questions from senators, Barr put his point of view on paper in black and white. He called for the approval of more legal growers of marijuana for research, acknowledged that the 2018 Farm Bill legalized hemp, which had broad implications for sale of cannabis products. As discussed at my hearing, he said, I did not intend to go after parties who have complied with state law in reliance on the Cole Memorandum, he wrote, referring to the Obama-era cannabis enforcement guidance that then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded last year. That said, Barr isn't committing to formally replacing the Cole Memo, which generally directed federal prosecutors not to interfere with state marijuana laws. Let them do their own thing. The states are in control. Federal government doesn't want to participate. That's what the Cole Memo said. Jeff Sessions pulled it back. Barr is kind of mixed. I've not closely considered or determined whether further administrative guidance would be appropriate following the Cole Memorandum and the January 2018 Memorandum form from the Attorney General Sessions, right, back to Jeff Sessions, or what such guidance might look like, he wrote in response to a question from Senator Cory Booker, yes, running for president, who's a big believer in the space. I still believe that the legislative process rather than the administrative process should guide us, said Mr. Barr. But even as Barr reiterated that he wouldn't go after people and businesses that benefited from the Cole Memo, he voiced criticism of policy directives and of the idea of legalization in general. I don't even know how to deal with that. Do you? Does anybody know how to deal with that? I'm confused. So first he says he's in favor. Then he gets into office, and I believe that he had some coaching from a gentleman that's a little bit, uh, I'm not sure older would be right, but certainly taller. We know who he is, the gentleman with the hair. And now, all of a sudden, is waffling everywhere. So you've got people supporting him, Barr, because they say that some of the things he said is pro-cannabis. And you have people that are challenging him because many of his recent positions were anti-cannabis. Well, there you go. Confusion reigns supreme in our current government, led by our current president, and it ain't getting any easier. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this show. Let me summarize by saying this. The legal cannabis category is growing like a weed, pun intended, and will approach $40 billion in 2022. We have 33 medicinal states, 11 adult use states. The federal government still says it's a felony. What does that do? 
It makes this the fastest growing business in the U.S. today. Not one business, but 50 businesses. Since you have to organically grow a business in each state, you can't even take the product from Massachusetts across a state line, right? And you heard from Ryan that there's a lot of pushback from the governors from the state to want to see any business coming across the state line into Massachusetts or the other way. Well, I'm telling you right now, the state of Massachusetts is going to be thrilled to death when all the New Yorkers start driving across the border because New York is slow in adult use. Massachusetts has approved it. And you got to know that there's a lot of people crossing that border, right, buying product and doing what? Bringing it back. If they get caught bringing it back, that's a felony. That could be eight years in prison. Does any of this make sense? I don't know that it does. Okay. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show and our guest, Ryan Anson. We'll be back next week for another, I'm now saying 55 minutes, because the news is five minutes, of the critical issues facing this exciting new medicinal discovery of cannabis. We will continue to cover all the relevant issues, the medical implications, political, financial, etc. I'll do my best to get the best guests I can, and I have an assignment for all of you. Start telling me what you like and what you don't like, and if you're not careful, I'm going to basically take calls, and that could really upset the apple cart, couldn't it? All right, so let me know what you think, and remember, knowledge is built brick by brick. Today, you got my eighth brick. I need to say something before we close, and that is I hope you all had a great July 4th and you're enjoying the weekend. Now, until next week, this is NYCBD with Jeffrey Hill. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.